Good morning, everyone. Matthew 18, so many important things to cover. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself, and he set them before him and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one child in my name receives me. Let me stop there for a moment and say that Jesus desires that we would be humble and turn from our self-sufficiency, turn from thinking that we're good enough or somehow you know, we've earned heaven and to turn away from our sin and embrace the Lord as our Savior. And He then will grant us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This word here, turned or converted, could be translated turned. And it means very similar to like repent, you know, to turn away from going one way and to turn towards another way or to turn towards Jesus. It makes me think of the time when the religious leader in John chapter 3 came to Jesus. It was a, re a Jewish leader. And, and, and Jesus, he said, you know, Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You think about what it means to, to be born. It means to start anew, to start afresh, to uh, begin to live a, a new life. It's a, it's a transformed life. And, and much like a child coming to follow one and follows one humbly. And, you know, a child, when it, it really trusts their parent, will, will follow him wherever he goes, a young child. And Jesus is saying, that's the kind of thing that I want from you. I really want you to turn from any other way and to be fully devoted to me. You've got to be willing to convert. It's a it's a new life in Jesus. And it's a blessed life, you know. I came to trust in the Lord, you know, in 1996 or 2023 right now. So, you know, a long time ago. And it was a, a born-again experience. I mean, I began to live a, a, a new life. And yet I participated in or tried some of the sin that I did before in, in the new life that I embraced. And it's like, I just knew it was wrong. Um, you know, I remember as a young man, I smoked marijuana, not, not as a habit, but I did it with friends. And uh, I had some friends at the time that I went hunting with and they would smoke pot. And this is, I just got converted in October and accepted Christ still had plans to go hunting with my hunting buddies. And the day before hunting, when we were setting up our tree stands, people were going to smoke marijuana. And I, I remember I took one hit from the marijuana and it was like, I instantly knew that's not what God had for me. I just knew this is not, this is not right anymore. And that was the last time that I ever took a hit of marijuana. The Lord converted me. He changed me. And he wants to change all of us like that, to turn away from our old lives and to embrace a new life in him. It's a blessing. It's been a blessing to me. Hallelujah. I'm thankful to be found in Jesus.
the way to do it is to simply say, Jesus, I realize that I'm a sinner and that my sin separates me from you. And I've come to realize that you've died for me, that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I believe that you died and then you rose again, having victory over sin. And I trust you now as my Lord and Savior. I'm thankful for the forgiveness of sins. And please, Lord, help me with your Holy Spirit now as a believer in you to live a new life in your name. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, a prayer like that meant from the heart is what it means to begin a new life in Christ, to be saved. And I encourage you to even rewind that and play it again and say that prayer to the Lord and give your life to Him and be converted. And I'll tell you what, if it's genuine, you'll be so glad you did for a lifetime. It'll change, it'll change your life coming to Jesus in that way. Listen to what he says in verse 5 and 6. And whoever receives one child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. What a word by our Savior Jesus. This shows the significance that Jesus places on our example and how we lead children. Children are vulnerable. Children um, are still learning. They don't necessarily always know better. And if they have an adult that they trust, they will follow them. And we want to lead young people in this world that's around us the right way. And if we lead them into sinful ways, Jesus is saying, if you were to keep going like that, it'd be better if you just had a millstone hung around your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea because you're leading people away from me. You know, and I think there'd be a lot of ways to do this, whether it be introducing um, children to drugs or to drunkenness or you know, what comes to my mind is sexual promiscuity. I mean, introducing kids to pornography or, you know, sexual abuse or any of those things, just we, we want to keep our kids pure and help them to know the right ways, not introduce them to the wrong ways of living. I would say that in this era, and, you know, I can't say that this is exactly what Jesus was thinking about in his era. But in our era, one of the, the largest travesties of our day is the promotion of homosexuality. <clears throat> and, and today, it, it, it's so much embraced that we're actually teaching children to embrace it. I feel so bad for a young child who maybe, you know, plays with their sister and played with a doll and then could have some adult say, oh, well, you know what? You'll find out if you're going to be attracted to men or women later. We'll have to see how God made you. And and they think because they're, maybe they're playing with a doll or they don't like sports like the other boys, that maybe they're gay and that the society and, and adults are actually teaching people that this is the way that it is. It's completely wrong. And, and it's perpetuating a problem in our culture. Homosexuality is wrong. The Lord calls it an abomination. And 
It's a sin, and we should be teaching people that is it, it's improper. It's not the way that God designed us. He designed us either male or female from the beginning, and our society is just crazy. They've gone off the deep end. They have no idea what they're even saying, and we're teaching people about this, and it's better to have a heavy millstone hung around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea than to train children at a young age to be gay. Uh, I just, it, I'm so saddened by by this. And, you know, literally it's on the advance so much because of cultural acceptance and promotion that, that children are literally being talked into this. And those who are most susceptible are ones who've had father wounds or mother wounds or have faced a lot of rejection or feel like they haven't fit in. And then the world around them and adults around them are are fanning this into flame that, well, maybe the reason that you felt awkward your whole life is because you're gay and it seems like a solution to their hurt problem and it's just leading them farther away from God. It's it's wrong and we, we got to get our wits about us and trust in the Bible and teach people what God says. But don't be someone who promotes homosexuality or endorses it. You should be speaking against it and teaching the truth. And, and not just in homosexuality, but in all areas. So we're not leading children away from Jesus. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. You know, I think of... Uh, you know, growing up, I uh, thinking of some relatives, and one of them had uh, a bunch of uh, porn stuff in their workshop, and and I just know that it wasn't good for that that son. It wasn't good for me to be exposed to that as a young man walking into his workshop in his garage. It's wrong. We don't want to teach kids about porn. They don't need to see that stuff. It pollutes thinking, and it. It wrecks relationships. It wrecks marriages. You know, all of it's bad. We should we should not even have pornography in our country. It should be legal. It's just we're 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 really off the rails on on some of this sexual stuff in our country um, and in our world. But our country is a, a leader in it. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Hmm. You know, Jesus is coming on strong because this is what sometimes people need to hear to convert. You know, you need to, to hear that like these ways are bad and wrong and acknowledge it so that you turn from it and turn towards Jesus. And you know what? Who wants to end up in hell? And th- these things are path to hell, all this stuff, because it's going to turn you away from God and it's going to turn you towards sin. And ultimately, people who don't embrace Jesus and live in this sin, these sins, it's gonna, they're going to be cast into the eternal fire. And it's not going to be good on that day. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Now, I don't really know people who actually have done this and pulled out their eye, but I would have to say he's right. It'd be better for me to pluck out my eye 
than to end up in hell if that eye was going to save me from falling into the path. But, you know, one eye can still do the damage that two eyes can do. So he's trying to just share a hyperbole here. He's trying to share something significant so we'll see the error of sin and turn away from it and turn towards Jesus because heaven is real and hell is real. And those who don't repent and turn to Jesus are, are headed to a fiery hell. And Jesus died. Think about this, the good news. Jesus died to save us from that. Hallelujah. He doesn't. We don't need to go there. We can turn to Jesus in the forgiveness of sins and then embrace the new life in his name. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And, you know, praise God, there's even angels that are before our Lord and perhaps even on our behalf before the Lord. What a beautiful thing that is. Then we see one of these verses that's in parentheses again, just a verse, verse 11, that probably was inserted later by some scribe. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, that's been spoken by Jesus throughout the gospel, so it's a correct statement, and hallelujah, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And, and it, it's a biblical statement. It's something that Jesus said but it may not have been said in, in, in Matthew's account originally. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is strain? If it turns out that he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And it shows the desire and joy that Jesus has in seeing a lost person come home to him, come back into the fold of the church, and to embrace him and receive the forgiveness of sins. It shows the, the length of effort that we, the church, and Jesus wants to put forth to see lost people become found. And he rejoices. This is something that, listen, if you come to faith in Jesus, and turn from wicked ways, and turn towards Him, He rejoices over that. The angels celebrate in heaven over one sinner who repents. Then it gets into something very significant and important here. Uh, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, we'll just stop there. When we have a problem with someone, and it could be a sin problem, it could be a relationship problem, it could be some kind of hurt. What the Bible teaches us to do is not go and talk to everyone else about it, not to gossip, not to bring everyone else in on it, but to go and tell that person alone. And let them know alone, hey brother, this this hurt or that hurt or this, when that happened, you know, it, it, it was a problem for me, and I want to talk to you about it. Or in this case, if it's a sin, to let them know, hey, brother, that's not what God's best is for you. Now, before I go any further, there's so much that I could add to this ahead of this. Like, first of all, if something happens in your life where you might get a little bit offended by what someone did or a sin, you can just overlook an offense. You know, you can just forgive and move on. You don't always have to go and confront. But if something is significant that you seem 
can't seem to get past or you feel like it was a significant enough breach or error or whatever, then instead of talking to other people about it, in love, you go to your brother. And, and one thing to do when you go to your brother and talk to him is to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, do you remember when this happened? Maybe, like, what was going on with that? Like, what happened there? And, and maybe they have an explanation which will help in your understanding. But it'd be best to not go in an attacking mode when you go alone. By the way, you're supposed to go alone and talk to them. But to try to say, hey, what, what happened there? I just want to hear from you. Maybe there's something I didn't understand. That would be a respectful way to come to someone. And then to let them know about their sin or how what they did hurt you. And hopefully they handle it well. Now, then in verse 16 it says, But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Now, that was quoting from the Old Testament there. But let's say you're having a relationship problem. You handle, you go to that person with respect and consideration. You talk to them alone so you don't drag other people into, into it. Now, if this is a, 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 a relationship that it, you, know, you really want to be restored, then it says, you know what, why don't you bring a godly person with? Bring someone who's got some wisdom with, maybe one or two, and talk it out with others so that they can help you to reconcile, to come back together in your relationships. And then he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, this is a, a really kind of a Christian principle of how we're supposed to deal with conflict. Now, I would say, tell it to the church. Let's say you've gone alone. And I think most, let's first of all, say you overlook an offense. I think that's a great way to do it is to overlook it. Now, if that can't be done, you go to them alone and you handle it properly but it still doesn't work out. Then you bring in a godly one or two others. And, and, and if, man, usually things are, are reconciled by then, in my experience. Um, and then if not, it says bring the church. Now, that could mean, in my mind, maybe the council of elders or a larger group. I don't necessarily think it needs to be in public in front of the whole church. I think that's a place that it could go. But, but at first, it could be representatives of the church. And you could bring the case before them and look for that larger group of that represents the church to help you guys in your struggle or challenge or whatever it may be. But if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, at that time, uh, prior to the church fully being developed after Jesus' death, resurrection, and, and Pentecost, you know, Gentiles were not looked at in good rapport with Jews. So he's basically, they, in fact, they avoided Gentiles. And if you've tried, if you've done all these things right, which in my experience, most people don't, by the way. My experience, most people gossip and get other people involved. Don't give the benefit of the doubt. Don't bring just one or two with them that have maturity. And sadly, unfortunately, um, things a lot of times don't aren't not conducted the way that the Bible says here, and it leads to a lot of problems. Um, especially the first one: go to them alone, so that you honor them by not dragging other people into this and hinder someone's reputation. Go and talk to them alone. But anyways, if this none of this works, then there's sometimes there needs to be a separation. 
you know, where, where you and somebody else, you, you do go in different directions because uh, of the problem that's there and people not willing, being willing to repent. So, but this is a great amount of effort to do it correctly. And we should always seek to do it in this way. And then he says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And, you know, we've brought this passage up once before, and I, I've tried to look and find what some biblical scholars have had to say about this, and a lot of them don't talk much about it. They kind of move on by it. But uh, one thing I say is, listen, if, if, if we were to help someone come to know the Lord on earth, and, and they accept Jesus, and they're loosed from their sin instead of being bound in their sin, right? They've, they've been set free from the consequences of their sin. Jesus would then be saying, well, they'll be loosed in heaven. They're forgiven in heaven too. But if you were to share someone and you try to reach someone for the gospel and they just keep tripping over themselves and they don't come to Jesus, they don't accept them, and they're still under the consequences and penalty of their sin on earth because they haven't accepted Jesus, well, they're going to be bound in heaven too, unless later on they were to repent. And, and, and he's saying in the same way, this person that you're trying to deal with honorably in order to reconcile and, and build a relationship and overcome a hurdle. And it, you know, if you do it correctly and bring them before alone and then bring them for you know, godly others and, and they aren't willing to re- repent and they just are keep perpetuating the problem, the problem's still going to exist on earth, and if it's not reconciled, it's still going to resist exist in, in heaven too. It'll still be bound there instead of being loosed. So um, that gives you some idea as to what that passage could be saying. Verse 19, again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And, you know, it's great to have godly brothers and sisters come together in prayer and agree on an issue together in prayer and ask the Lord in prayer. And there there seems to be a power that Jesus is promising we'll have when we come together that way. Now, sometimes prayer is answered with a no, that can be, or a not yet, or a wait. But yet, coming together as a, a church, as a group of friends that love the Lord in prayer is something that Jesus honors and encourages us to do here. You know, there's even a passage, uh, if you're sick, if any of you are sick, have the elders come, lay hands on you, anoint you, and and pray over that person. And that, that too is encouraged and a good thing to do to pray for someone. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Peter asked. Jesus said to him, I did not I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Seventy times seven, and what is that, four ninety? So basically that shows us the length and depth and quantity of the forgiveness we're to give our fellow men and women. You know, sometimes there's a difference between forgiveness and consequences. Meaning when someone is in a perpetuate state of harming you, um, you can, you should forgive them because sometimes they just know not what they do. They're caught up in their own sin. 
we also have sin, right? We've made mistakes, and we felt short of the glory of God, and we need forgiveness. So just as we need forgiveness, others need forgiveness too. But, you know, it, this is kind of a harsh example, but if someone sexually uh, were to do something improper to my child, uh, the Lord would ask me to forgive them, but he would not ask me to have them watch my child again. Like, there's a difference between forgiveness and consequences. So you can forgive someone, but there still can be consequences of their behavior that affects the relationship and how you manage that relationship. That's different from forgiveness, but you are to forgive. Uh, you know, this is not a Bible verse. Perhaps I've said it before in these lessons, I'm not sure. But to forgive is to set the prisoner free, only to discover the prisoner was me. See, we are a prisoner of our own forgiveness. And by forgiving, we set ourselves free. We're, we're actually locked up when we are in unforgiveness. And to forgive is to set ourselves free from the unforgiveness and bitterness that's in our heart. So Jesus does want us to forgive. Um, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, but since he did not have the means to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Now, just want to stop for a moment. You know, a lot of times you'll hear the word slave in the Bible, and we will automatically, in America, Think of, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th century slavery where blacks were forcibly put on ships from Africa and then came over to America and were sold against their will to be like property or chattel and not even considered human and treated harshly. And that slavery is completely wrong. And if, 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 in the Bible times, New Testament times, slavery existed, but it wasn't that slavery. And B, the slavery that's talked about in the Bible, every time you hear the Bible talking about it, it elevates it. It honors uh, treating people honorably and rightly and even talks about, hey, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. But we automatically put our perception of the slavery that was done in America onto the Bible, and that it wasn't the same. So in order to understand biblical slavery, we would need to understand what it was in Bible times. Now, agreeably, that can be hard because it was a long time ago. But here you have a situation where someone lost all their money and they could not provide for themselves. So they were about to become slaves of someone who could afford to have them so that that person could survive. You know, the Israelites, you might remember, uh, thinking of slavery in the Bible, the Israelites were starving, Jacob and his family, and Joseph had been sent ahead to Jerusalem. We just covered this in Genesis not too long back, not to Jerusalem. He got sold into slavery in Egypt, and he was told that there was going to be a famine, and he saved grain in Egypt for seven years, and then there was going to be seven years of famine, and the famine hit. And Jacob and his family, who God wanted them to be fruitful and multiply, by the way, they ended up making it to Egypt, 
and being saved from starvation because of the immense famine. And God did a miracle, really, in saving them. But over time, in order to buy the grain and food, the Israelites ended up having to sell their possessions to buy the food, and ultimately they had nothing left. So then the Pharaoh said, all right, well, listen, you know, I won't let you starve, but now you can work for me since you don't have any other possessions. You can work for me and I'll keep feeding you. And they became slaves in Egypt. Well, that's a little bit different than being forced on a ship to go overseas and then sold into slavery forcibly against your will. This was a, a means of survival, you know, in, in that instance in Egypt. And I, I think that was more of the slavery that took place in the Bible is that for some of those folks who had nothing, this was a means of providing for their family was to work for someone who could afford to have them. That doesn't mean that I'm suggesting that this is the right way to live. I'm just saying we've got to keep it in context. And the thing is, is that under that context, the Bible uses the term slavery to talk about us in the sense that we're slaves of God. And in some ways, the picture is, you know, that we can't take anything with us from this life. None of none of our possessions are going to go to heaven. In a sense, everything here is really God's because we're only just stewarding it for a little while. We get to use it for a little while, but one day, someday, anything that we've acquired here on earth is going to stay on earth. And while we're here, we're supposed to be living to serve our master. We're supposed to be living to serve his priorities. And sometimes he uses that type of slavery to introduce to us um, our service to God in, in that way. So it's important to understand the context of what was taking place in that day. Well, anyways, this guy, he didn't want to have to um, just work for this person as a slave, sell all he had and have his family just work as a slave. And he owed a lot of money. So he said, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Forgave him the debt. Think about that. He said, go your way. You are forgiven. You don't even have to pay anymore. Imagine that. What a, what a, what a blessing. We, and that's what we have in Jesus. He's forgiven us of our, the debt of our sin. Hallelujah. So he forgave him everything. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, Have you patience with me, and I will repay you. But the slave who was forgiven, he was unwilling, and went away and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord, the one who had forgiven them the first time, who had forgiven the slave the first time, and they reported him all that happened. Then summoning the one who now was being unforgiving, who had been forgiven, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And do you know what is happening in this picture is really we're that slave. We are the slave who owed Jesus and our sin had a debt against us. And Jesus said, I will forgive you of everything. 
If you just but turn to me, I'll forgive you of everything. And you can go to heaven because you have been loosed of your sin. I have forgiven you. And then if we were to go out knowing that we've received the forgiveness of God in such a wonderful way, if we were to go out and be unforgiving towards everyone else, even though we have received such great forgiveness, we would be like that wicked slave who's been forgiven but hasn't forgiven others. Wow, what a, what a story, what a great parable to illustrate the importance of forgiveness. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And we have been forgiven of all by Jesus, and we are to forgive others. Thank you, Lord, for such great teaching. God bless you all.